I now pronounce you husband and wife. Congratulations. You have a beautiful baby boy. And the Huskies have climbed to the top of the NCAA mountain. UConn, you bet. Huskies, 77. Duke, 74. These are my most cherished moments in life. Thank you for tuning in to the show today. Welcome to Sliders and Curveballs. My name is Joseph and I'm eight years old. My name is Mike. I'm Joseph's dad. We are a father and son team learning the sports world together. So sit back, relax, because we're going on a trip down memory lane, or should I say, Jim Calhoun Way. You've seen our next guest on Fox 61. You can hear him as a sportscaster on WTIC and co-host of the morning show with Ray Dunaway. Please join us in welcoming nine-time Connecticut Sportscaster of the Year, voice of the Huskies for over 25 years, and my personal favorite, Joe D'Ambrosio. U-C-O-N-N. Yukon, 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 rough. Welcome to the show, Joe D. Mike, how are you? We're doing great. Here's Joseph as well. Hi, hey, Joseph. Joe how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. How are you holding up? You all right? Yeah. Yeah, what are you doing for fun? Um, Usually, I am either shooting some hoops. Excellent. Good for you. Little combination of indoor activities and, and outdoor, that's for sure. I Thank bet. you so much for taking a break with us today from all of your uh, media obligations and, and your Strictly Sports podcast with Joe D. What have you been doing in, in quarantine? Uh, actually, besides working in the mornings, uh, I am uh, recreating the 1962 baseball season for the Yankees, Red Sox, and Mets with Stratomatic. Uh, 62, I was nine. Uh, and I, I was pretty into baseball then. So I just decided I had seen Stratomatic was doing uh, recreations of this season. And I said, eh, that's no fun. So I play like three Stratomatic games a day. It takes uh, a little over an hour and a half between the three games, uh, maybe a little more. But it's fun. I'm and having a good time. it's creating what the outcome would have been on a particular game from that year? Well, yeah. I mean, I use the lineups. And the starting pitcher from the website Retro Sheet, as close to the lineups as I can, there are some guys who didn't play many games, so they don't have cards for. Uh, but then I make all the pitching changes and the lineup changes. And it's, it's basically a roll of the dice. It's not an exact science, but it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. The Yankees record is a little bit worse than it was at this stage. Uh, the Mets are a little bit better. And the Red Sox are right about where they were. Well, kind of takes so. you back to your childhood. That's pretty fun. That's exactly Especially what I'm if, doing, Mike. If you're it's missing exactly baseball right now, you got to get a little bit creative. And that's why we've been doing a little bit of extra podcasting uh, from the house. We miss being in our studio. We'd love to have you there one day in person. But we'll take a rain check on that. And we're just so excited that you are going to spend uh, some time with us this morning. I'm looking forward to it. We would like to look back at your incredible career. You've had the best seat in the house for so many years of UConn basketball. And we wanted to revisit 
the UConn men's four national championship teams, what made their years so special from your perspective and the title games that you called. It's funny because I was, I was talking to my wife and I was listening to a lot of your radio calls this week uh, preparing for the show. And it's, it, you get emotional. It's, it's, it's like listening to an old song and remembering where you were in your life when that happened. And it's kind of like a scrapbook of my life, one that I wanted to share with Joseph and our listeners. Well, yeah, I, that's, that's very nice of you to say that, Mike. It was, uh, you know, it was four men's games and four women's national championship games too. So, you know, I, I was pretty lucky. I led a, uh, I had a terrific uh, play-by-play career for 26 years at WTIC doing UConn games. Um, and all the national championships had special We're meaning. We're excited to learn more about them today. Joseph, do you want to kick off the show with the very first question? Yes, I would. My first question is, how did you get into sports casting and get the UConn job? Well, I got into sports casting, Joseph, because I always loved sports when I was a kid growing up. But I knew that I wasn't good enough to be a pro athlete. And I would go to the game. I would go to games and I would go to Yankee Stadium. And I first thing I'd look for was where the broadcasters sat. Uh, and I always liked radio. So that my it was kind of two passions of mine that collided. Uh, and I got the Yukon job in May of 1992 after spending the previous seven and a half years at WPOP in Hartford as an anchor, as a news anchor and a sports anchor uh, and doing some Yukon on a backup basis till about 1989. And then I did a couple of games on TV uh, in those years and I did. Jim Calhoun's coaches shows. Uh, and then I applied for the job when uh, the rights moved to WTIC for the 92, 93 oh, season. That's great. And then all of a sudden you got this call and, and you realize I'm going to be the voice of a team that has had some success. And are you thinking this is going to, you're going to be doing it for as many years as, as you thought? You never think that. I think you want to be there as long as you can, Mike, but you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how your career is going to turn. I never looked to go elsewhere. The only the only job I would have ever left UConn for would have been the Giants uh, play-by-play radio football on the radio, and that obviously was in very good hands with Jim Gordon and Bob Papa. But, no, I grew up following UConn. Uh, as a kid, I would listen to George Ehrlich do the games on the radio and Dick Galliott broadcast them on TV. So it's always been a – it's always been a passion. We're, we're so lucky in the state of Connecticut to have had your voice over the years. And it's just so recognizable. And it just brings back so many great memories. I wanted to take us back to 1999, if we could, Joe. Uh, the team only lost two games that year. When did you realize that this team had a chance to be very special as you're witnessing and making these calls game after game? I think early in the year. I think when they beat Pittsburgh uh, on a Khaled El Amin a uh, shot with about two seconds to go at Fitzgerald Fieldhouse after trailing for most of the game. I thought they were pretty special. And then when they won the Big East tournament in such dominant fashion, I thought for sure uh, they could go They could go all the way. It was such a special team because the starting five fit like a glove. You know, you had the great point guard in Khalid. You had the terrific defensive guard in Ricky. Uh, you had the quintessential scoring forward in Rip. You had the tough guy and defensive forward in Kevin. 
and you had a rebounding, shot-blocking guy in Jake in the middle, plus the spare parts, Suleiman Juan, Edmund Saunders, Albert Mooring, it was you know, Rashmel Jones, obviously. It was just a perfect fit. Just incredible balance. I mean, they really had everything that they needed to succeed. Uh, no weaknesses. And, and they end up going into the tournament and they have to face tournament Cinderella, media darling Gonzaga, the number 10 seed. They win 67 to 62. And then you find out that you're suddenly heading to Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg for the, the school's first Final Four. How did you spend Final Four weekend preparing and help us relive a little bit of the moments from that championship game versus Duke. It was different back then, because even though it was a big event, there wasn't as much media hype as there is now. I mean, when I've gone to Final Fours, the last three Final Fours that I went to, actually four, counting the 09 loss in Detroit to Michigan State, you would do a lot of interviews uh, the week before the game on sports talk radio. Um, but 99, there was really none of that. I did a few. The day of the game, I did a few. Uh, leading up to it, uh, I did some. Um, but just preparation for the game was basically the same way I prepared for every game. I tried to treat it from my standpoint like it was just another broadcast, first the Ohio State game and then the Duke game, because you don't want to kill your listeners with 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 stats and numbers. You know, my broadcast partner, Wayne Norman, was so good at that, not killing people with it, but but parsing out the information that, you know, I, I would have the basics down uh, and Wayne would fill in the blanks. But, you know, my weekend was pretty, uh, pretty routine. We got to Tampa on uh, Thursday. We went to the press conferences on Friday. I knew Jim O'Brien, the Ohio State coach from his time at UConn. So I had a, a nice chat with him and talked with him. Uh, Coach Calhoun is always I had had a terrific relationship with him. I had a good talk with him pregame the day of the game, and you know, visiting with the assistant coaches and the like. And then when the game took off, it was it was once the, once the ball gets thrown in the air, guys, it's like any other broadcast. You got to describe things. You got to be the eyes of the of the listeners. Now, granted, it was for a little more than say a a midweek home game against New Hampshire. But, you know, you go about the job and, you know, you try to convey the excitement. Uh, if UConn's not playing well, you got to tell that side of the story, too. We never believed in shielding the listeners from the bad stuff. But you know who your audience is as well. You know, we knew that there would be people in transit. And back then, you could also listen to the games and sync up the TV a lot easier. And we knew a lot of people did that. So the weekend was pretty good. Pretty interesting. You know, Sunday, the day between games, we had press conferences. Neither head coach was available to the other radio crew. So what we did was Bob Harris, the Duke radio broadcaster, and I simultaneously did a pregame interview with each other to run on our shows on Monday night. So that was that was kind of fun. Uh, and then, you know, Monday was a long day waiting for the game. The tip wasn't till 9.19, I think, or 9.22. So it was a long day sitting by the pool, you know, thinking about the game, thinking about potential calls if UConn won, not wanting to sound hokey and pre-rehearsed, but wanting to have something ready just in case. Uh, and then, you know, the night never ended. It was a it was a long, happy night. I mean, one of the greatest nights of my life. As a fan, you're just thinking to yourself, we're going up against Coach K. 
boy, I think UConn was probably about a 10-point underdog, and you say to yourself, just keep this close. If you can just keep it close. Uh, Ricky Moore, what a first half, and then he's a defensive wizard as well. I love the storyline to go at, uh, about going up against his his old uh, neighborhood friend, and and then it just the excitement just continued to start to build. And defensively, that last two or three minutes, things just went UConn's way. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a good analysis, Mike. As the game got deeper and deeper, you're right. The excitement tended to grow. Uh, and but you, as the broadcasters, you didn't want to be screamy, but you want to convey that excitement. Well, I thought Wayne and I did that pretty well. And then you know it climaxed with Langdon tripping on the last possession and then um, giving it the moment that it deserved. Uh, Joseph and I actually watched that game on YouTube not too long ago. So he was he was excited to see some of the players that I talk about in the house to see what they actually were like, really when they were just kids and they were making a, a big impact for the happiness in the, in the state of Connecticut. I will never forget landing at Bradley and driving to Gamble ahead of the, the team plane. And there were already people waiting for the team to get in. And then, of course, the rally at Gamble uh, after they had won. Uh, it was pretty heady stuff. I never thought that I would see it. You know, I wanted Jim Calhoun to succeed so badly. And it was just really the start of something special. If we move to 2004, which ends up being a dual championship year, this was another dominant season, one that seemed on paper like a golden opportunity that with Okafor and Gordon and Talik Brown, they were going to be very good. Could you see this building towards the title? I, I think we saw it from the beginning. You know, I think the only question was going to be would Emeka's back hold up? Because if you remember, he had back problems during the year. He barely played in the first game against Georgian Tech uh, at Madison Square Garden in November in one of those uh, Thanksgiving holiday tournaments. And I think that really gave Georgia Tech a real false sense of confidence in the championship game. But you know, UConn was the prohibitive favorite from the beginning of the year. That wasn't the case any of the three other times. So this was a little different path to the championship. This was, you know, fighting through all the battles, staying healthy, fine-tuning your roles. And then, you know, once they got through the Big East tournament, once they beat Pittsburgh in that great 04 Big East championship game, you know, then the path to San Antonio was pretty easy. They rolled through the teams to get to San Antonio. And then, of course, in San Antonio, the Duke game, they were behind big. Omeka got two quick fouls. Jim held true to his beliefs of not playing somebody with two personal fouls in the first half. Mike Krzyzewski didn't do that with Sheldon Williams. He got a third foul in the first half. And then Emeka came back in the second half and proved that he was the best player in college basketball that year. You know, how he didn't win any of those awards. And Jameer Nelson from St. Joe's won them all. It's laughable. You know, I, I would say other than the 99 national championship game, as exciting a game might have been that 04 game against Duke. In fact, after that, guys, the title game was pretty much anticlimactic. Because you kind of took a big lead in the first half and just cruised yeah, on. I think that a lot of people were thinking that that semifinal game was really the two best teams in the country. And then it was going to be uh, one of them winning the title. And with, with a mecca, you know, his back in good health, uh, it really gave them 
just a real great edge in the in the championship game, as you mentioned. Georgia Tech uh, wasn't able to keep up with them, and and Ben Gordon during the Big East tournament, I think that's when they they named it Ben Garden. He really chipped in when Okafor sat for long periods of time. Yeah, actually, I think I think the right name was Madison Square Gordon, <laughs> is what they is what they called it. Um, he was terrific, and again, another team that had the pieces to the puzzle all fit perfectly. You know, for years, people wondered if Talik Brown was good enough to lead a team to the national championship. And Jim Calhoun always had faith in Talik. Uh, and I always liked Talik. I, I think Talik was one of my five most favorite players there at UConn. Uh, ben Gordon was an All-American. Uh, he was, you know, he was uh, Rip Hamilton uh, for that team. You know, then you had... Uh, Josh Boone, who was a freshman, was a shot blocker and a rebounder and had some huge buckets, you know, a big bucket and a over, double overtime win at Villanova uh, in February. You know, uh, Rashad Anderson was the gunslinger, uh, could light it up in a hurry at the small forward. And then you had the, the best player in the country in the middle. And again, another team that had a pretty deep bench, you know, led by Denham Brown and Hilton Armstrong. And people like that. So uh, that that 4 team was as dominant as the 99 team and didn't have an obstacle like Duke in its way to win the national championship. Are you thinking, uh, boy, Jim Calhoun just got his second uh, ring and Diana Tarazi made you something special a couple nights later? Well, I, what I was thinking was what time I had to get up to fly to New Orleans because I was doing both the men's and the women's games at that time. So uh, my weekend was Thursday, uh, fly from Hartford to San Antonio. Uh, Friday, uh, do all the pre-game media stuff for the Duke game. Uh, do the Duke broadcast Saturday. It was the second game of the doubleheader, so it was a late night. Wake up early Sunday morning. I had a 6 o'clock flight from uh, San Antonio to Dallas and then a connecting flight from Dallas to New Orleans. Uh, took about half my wardrobe with me because if UConn, the UConn women won, I was going to leave it, uh, half my clothes at my hotel in New Orleans because I knew I'd be flying back. Uh, UConn women did win. They beat, I think it was Minnesota then. So Monday morning, you know, that game was Sunday. Monday morning, uh, flew back from New Orleans to Dallas to San Antonio. Uh, did the Did my prep did the men's national championship game, then I couldn't get out of San Antonio Tuesday morning because everybody was trying to. So uh, we had to drive to Austin, uh, which was about an hour and a half drive at the, at the crack of dawn, and then flew Austin to Dallas and New Orleans, did the national championship game in New Orleans on Tuesday, became the only uh, radio broadcaster to do two national championship games in the same weekend uh, for your respective team. And then very happily and very tiredly flew home on Wednesday morning. Just an incredible experience. Joseph's got another question for you. Joseph, what do you got? How do you create a signature call for a big win or a buzzer beater? That's a very good question. You let it come to you. You know, I think it's it's all in the description of the games. Um, I, I think the best thing to do is, is to just let it happen. I mean, I had UConn, you bet ready for 99 because I thought that was the first one was pretty special, but everything else was just kind of ad lib, you know, as the game's happening when Kemba's got the ball against Pittsburgh 
in 2011, you know, I just described the play. I think too many broadcasters, if they have planned already what they're going to say, it comes off sounding that way. And I think it's much better to be natural and, you know, to have some ideas in your head. You know, you can't force a call. You know, you have to let the natural emotion come through. That way it sounds more authentic. Wow. That's nice. You got the second one? Go ahead. Yeah. What are some of your favorite game-winning shots? Well, obviously Kemba against Pittsburgh in the 2011 uh, Big East tournament. Um, Shabazz uh, against Florida in the regular season in 2014. Uh, Ryan Boatwright in 2015 against uh, Cincinnati in the Big East tournament, the XL Center. Um, Jamal's 75-footer to force a fourth overtime against Cincinnati uh, in the American Conference Tournament. Rip Hamilton in 1998 in the regional semifinals against Washington. Uh, I, I like that call a lot. Oh, I love that. Um, and, and Ray, obviously, in the 96 Big East Tournament final against Georgetown. But I would say those would be the those would be my favorites. On the women's side, Sue Bird shot the beat Notre Dame in the Big East finals at Gamble. Diana Tarazzi's game against Tennessee where she hit a buzzer beater at the first half, the second half, and the overtime shot to win it. And then in football, Andre Dixon's touchdown in the second overtime to beat Notre Dame and Dave Taggart's field goal that beat South Florida to get UConn to the BCS Bowl. All definitely exciting moments. Joe actually had his first buzzer beater this year for the uh, the Viking Raiders where uh, he put it up against a bunch of other seven-year-olds and then uh, a, a bunch of kids just stormed him on the court, right, Joe? You mean eight years old? Oh, eight years old, right. So he had some fun with it. Good for you, Joe. That must have been fun yeah. to have a shot like that. I've never, I've never made a buzzer beater. I've only oh. described them. It was for the like, last second of the game. Excellent. I wish you were there when announcing <laughs> the game. <laughs> yeah, it would have been great to hear you Maybe on the next call. Wouldn't that be great? We'll bring Joe D to one of your games and he can just do a little play-by-play for you from the sideline. He's free on Saturday mornings. Yeah, and actually I would I would have a um all-star game and a playoff because uh when you're in second grade, there's like levels that you do. So, like, in first grade, you're just on, like, a little team that you don't go head-to-head. Um, second grade, you just start going head-to-head. Third grade, there's a playoff game. And then fourth grade, there's an all-star game. Wow. That's a busy schedule. How do you get time for schoolwork? Actually, I do it on, like, games are on Saturdays and Sundays. Or only oh, okay. Saturdays. And my practices like they change practices, but my practice last year was on uh, Wednesday. So we'll go back here, Joe, for a second. If we can, we'll make a stop by 2009. Definitely a year to be proud of. Really, the theme was you're so close. The six overtime game and then a Final Four game in Detroit against Michigan State. Um, what do you remember about the long, long game uh, six overtimes against Syracuse. And and my other question is, if Dyson was healthy, does UConn beat North Carolina with Hansborough? They, I don't think they beat Michigan State. Uh, I think playing them in Detroit was just too big of a hardship. And the, the six overtime game, what I remember was, and I remember talking with Matt Park, my counterpart from Syracuse, was that we had no chance to uh, 
uh, take care of personal needs during that time. So that was a uh, uh, that was a everybody uh, sprinted for the bathroom once the once the broadcast is over. And I remember in our broadcast the game went until as you remember just before two a.m. And then we got to the post game show and we had run out of commercials because we had used all the post game commercials throughout the overtimes and stuff. And then I, I remember saying on the air, I said, "Well, here's where the highlights." normally go but you know what it's two o'clock in the morning and you don't want to hear any of these anyway so uh and, but that was a that 09 team was a great team led by uh aj price uh and obviously kemba as a freshman was was terrific um but you know i i don't i don't think even with with dyson they would have beaten michigan state in, in detroit you know you kind you kind of had a lot of those over the years where they had to play teams on neutral courts in their home state and they almost never came out well. So yeah, for some reason, the state of North Carolina gets a lot of uh, home cooking when it comes to brackets. Well, it's not. It's not just that. Uh, in '92, you kind of lost to Ohio State and Cincinnati, but Ohio State was the one seed. In '94, they lost in the regional semis to Florida in Miami, but that's when Donnie got hurt and wouldn't have been able to play in the regional final. That was the Danielle free throw game. In 95, there was only one team better than them in the country, and that was UCLA, and they had to play them in the Elite Eight in L.A. Maybe as good a UConn loss as I've ever seen, 102-96. Ray had 36 points. Um, in 98, they had to play North Carolina in Greensboro. Again, North Carolina was a better team. Uh, and in 2003, they had to play Texas in San Antonio. <laughs> So they, they got dealt that hand. And then 09, they played Michigan State and Detroit. But again, Michigan State, a better team. They got dealt that hand a lot of times. Yeah, it was uh, definitely yeah, big was hurdles to overcome. You know, and people will point to 06 playing George Mason in D.C., but I don't include that. UConn was the one seed. And of all the losses in the tournament that they endured, that one was probably the toughest to take. I remember it. I'll never forget it. Uh, they just wouldn't go away, and we just didn't have enough. It was their night, and in a one-game format, sometimes that will happen. No question. In 2011, uh, Joe, this all ended at Reliant Stadium in Houston, Texas. But well before that, there was an exciting trip to Hawaii. And then, as you had mentioned, uh, it went into MSG after kind of a rocky ending to the season. And then that game against Pitt. Everything seemed to click. Uh, McGee was guarding Kemba. Maybe you could take us to what you were thinking on the microphone in that last minute of that play. Well, you know, UConn had won the first two games. UConn got a break maybe by getting ninth because they could ease into the tournament with wins against DePaul and a really injured Georgetown team. Uh, and then they fell behind Pitt 20 to eight, eight minutes into that game. It looked like they were going home, um, but they rallied. Uh, and then in the final 20 seconds, 16 seconds, Kemba missed the shot. But Jamal Coombs McDaniel came down with the rebound and called timeout before Pittsburgh could tie him up. And that set the stage for the game-winning shot. And once McGee switched out on Kemba, I knew UConn was going to win the game. I knew Pittsburgh had no shot. Gary McGee, who was a good player, uh, but will forever remember, forget his ankles broken by Kemba in that iconic move. He had no shot to stop Kemba at that time. Uh, and then after that, the overtime game with Syracuse, uh, the exciting win over uh, uh, over Louisville. Uh, but still, 
you know, as great as that was, I don't know if anybody realistically thought UConn was going to win the national championship. They had to go out to Anaheim and play San Diego State, which featured a guy named Kawhi Leonard, and then Arizona. And that Arizona game, Arizona had a couple of clean shots to win it in the final 10 seconds or so. Um, and then the final four, the, the win over uh, Kentucky, and then the Butler game, which you'll never see when they show highlights of NCAA championship games. Because look, let's be honest, it was one of it was one of the ugliest games in, in NCAA championship game history. Yeah, forty-one points a, a Brad Stevens team uh, scored. Uh, really defensive, like crazy. I, it, it must have been a very tough game to call. It was, yeah. You know, when the ball doesn't go in the hoop, that makes it difficult. Uh, but you still. You know, you're still narrating for people what's going on. But, yeah, when, when teams shoot as poorly as, as those two teams shot, especially in the first half, you're wondering, is this ever going to end? I think that they had just a handful of two-pointers the whole game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, I don't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but it was not pretty. That's for sure. I just remember saying, uh, you know, I don't care how pretty it is. Somehow Kemba is going to go on a two- or three-minute stretch, and he's going to put some distance between this team and we're going to just have a third title. I don't care if the score ended 12 to 9. It's going to happen. I was just waiting for it and waiting for it. And then all of a sudden, he had that little spurt that he's able to do all year long. And then that was the end of it. I think people underestimated just how tired Kemba was by that point. He was beaten down to a frazzle. You know, he got, and he got a lot of help. He got help from a lot of good players to, to get to that point. Yeah, it was an incredible run. The five games in five days leading up to getting ready to go to the tournament, um, it was uh, definitely one of the most exciting periods in, in my sports life. I was at the game, the home game against Notre Dame uh, senior night, and I remember walking out of the building saying, I don't, I don't know if this team's got it. I don't know how far they'll go in the Big East tournament or beyond because they, they lost three or four games to end the season. But it was just that that call that you made where the shot went down against Pitt for some reason pumped such life and confidence into this team. Uh, you, you, you just can't stop confidence in sports. Well, that's why I think it was important, and you're right. They struggled down the stretch. That's why I think it was important that they got to play the first two games of the Big East tournament uh, against DePaul and Georgetown while Pittsburgh was sitting back waiting for them. I think that helped UConn. I think that hurt Pittsburgh. Finally, something goes our way. That's fantastic. When when we when we were in the Elite Eight game, from your perspective down low by the court, how close was that Arizona shot by, I think it was Jamil Horn, from going in? We were holding our breath. It looked good. Oh, it was, it was halfway down. I mean, it was, a, it was a wide open look. I mean, you can, you know, sometimes at every stage that you go through in winning a championship, you got to fight through some adversity and you got to catch a break and that was a huge break for UConn but again you know they got they had take gotten the lead up to that point so they had kind of earned that I'm so glad it didn't drop I mean I was on my uh on my knees saying oh don't go in don't go in and then all of a sudden somehow it just rattled out and it was it was great to see that UConn would live to play another day because we've seen uh shots just go the opposite way. And it's, it's nice to have one ball bounce in, in the way of the team that you're, you've been rooting for all your life. Yeah. There's no, there's no question. Um, you know, and that, that team, look, that 11 game run was as great a run as UConn basketball has ever had. 
the best. I love it. 2014, Joe, uh, UConn was a seven seed. There's something about you and going into the state of Texas, isn't there? This one was going to end at uh, Jerry's World. Joseph, this is the home of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Arlington, Texas, big screen, um, Texas-sized jumbotron. Walk us through the NCAA tournament here, uh, Joe, which nearly ended in round one. Well, that's right. And as I said a little bit earlier, you need a break to go all the way. And UConn's break there was Amita Brima as a freshman after scoring a basket with 40 seconds to go, made a free throw to tie the game against St. Joseph's in the first round in Buffalo. Uh, and then UConn had a big second half against Villanova in the next game. And then they caught a big break. They got to go home. They got to go to Madison Square Garden. There's never been a bigger home court UConn for you, a home court advantage for UConn in the NCAA tournaments than getting to play Iowa State and Michigan State at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and they were on a roll at that time. Uh, Shabazz uh, had secured his state as an iconic UConn player. Uh, Ryan Boatwright was the perfect running mate. Uh, DeAndre Daniels was playing his best ball of the year. Uh, Niels Gafai was invaluable. Uh, and Phil Nolan filled the void at center along with Brima. So the Michigan State game, the, the regional final game at the Garden, that was about as loud a crowd as I've ever heard at a UConn game, I'll be honest with you. And, you know, Michigan State got steamrolled, let's be honest. And then, you know, UConn dodged a bullet against Florida. They got behind big against Florida in, uh, in Arlington, and that game could have gone the other way, even though they had beaten Florida during the season. But UConn was a tougher team than that Florida team. And then they were a better team than Kentucky. And again, jumped out to this game. UConn jumped out to a big lead and had to hold on and got some big shots by Gafai and, and Napier. And, you know, that was the most unexpected national championship of UConn. It was finally nice to see uh, the territory with all UConn fans at MSG uh, give us the advantage, especially a little bit of payback for Michigan State when we had faced them in the Detroit area. So that was something that definitely propelled them uh, to go face Kentucky. I would say one thing, in all those other places, when UConn was on the other end of the stick, they were the, the lower seed. They were a seventh seed at Madison Square Garden. Now, uh, Iowa State was hurt, but Michigan State was a better team. That was kind of a rough break for Michigan State, being the higher seed and having to play UConn in the regional final on what was basically UConn's home court. They definitely take over New York City. The fans love to get on the subway and get on over there, and it's just such an iconic building. It really is a treat to see them play over there, and I hope that they'll have a lot more games there in the future. Uh, Joe, if if you are the coach, and it's a tie score, and you need somebody to win the game for you, looking back at UConn's history, who's the one player that would take the game-winning shot on your behalf? Every time it would be Kemba. From the Boston Celtics, Joseph, did you hear him say that? He wants Kemba Walker to take the shot if he's the coach to win a game. Yep, I heard that, but I would actually go with Jalen Adams. He's a big Jalen Adams fan. When he started watching games, he said, that's my guy. Oh, that's a good pick. That's a good pick. But I would take uh, uh, I would take Kemba. He hit more clutch shots than anybody in his UConn career. I agree with you. Uh, a lot of people talk about who the best players were of all time. I think if there was a Mount Rushmore to UConn basketball, I think it has to only be defined by titles. So in the first one, I would put Khaled Alameen, but I know Richard Hamilton would be down at the base of the mountain saying, uh, why not me? But I just thought that he was the guy that was the engine that made it go. 
And the second one I would take Okafor, uh, just incredible student athlete, Rhodes Scholar, and then Kemba and Shabazz. I mean, Kemba went right into the ring of honor as soon as they got back uh, from, from the title. Well, Shabazz did too. Um, I don't think you can leave Ray Allen off. I know he didn't win a title and you've got different criteria, but I would say Ray, Rip, Ameka, and Kemba. That would be my, that would be my four. And, you know, the other thing is there's a lot of guys who played basketball for UConn before Jim Calhoun came along who were incredible basketball players. Uh, People don't understand the history uh, that UConn has in basketball. You know, basketball didn't start in UConn in 1988. It goes back a long, long way before that. I'm glad. I'm glad that the traditions uh, were carried on through uh, the was the field house, and then all the way into uh, into stores. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's going to be. Uh, I think Dan Hurley has the things going in the right direction. Uh, you just wonder what the next basketball season is going to look like. You wonder what athletics is going to look like at UConn in the future. There's going to have to be some serious budget decisions made, and that's going to impact some sports and athletes and coaches who may have been there for a while. So, you know, uh, it, this is not, this is not an easy time for anybody, uh, especially in college athletics, especially when you've got such a, a budget crunch as you kind Definitely. Has. Definitely. If you put all four championship teams, Joe, in a seven game series, which championship team for UConn wins the title? Well, I'm going to blow out 11 and 14 right away. Uh, it's going to be between 99 and 04. That's a tough call. I think I would go with uh, 04. That's going to annoy Ricky Moore and Rip Hamilton and Kevin Freeman. But I think that, now, you know what? I'm going to change my mind. I think the 99 team oh, was look the at best Joseph team. says, I, I think it's the 99 team too, don't you, Joe? Yeah. Because I just like that game. I think they played better competition. Yeah, I agree, Joseph. I think they played better competition to win. So I'd go 99 would beat 04 in a seven-game series. Look at that. I love it. Joseph, you have one final question, right? Yeah. My final question is, do you have a favorite story you can tell us about Hall of Fame coach Jim Calhoun? Wow. Favorite Jim Calhoun story. I mean, you know, my favorite Jim Calhoun story is, is that in 99, on that Monday night at the Tropicana Dome, well, I have a couple, but that 99, uh, that Monday night, he was as calm as a cucumber. This was obviously the biggest game of his life. This is what he had coached his entire life for. But when we did our pregame interview, it could have been a it could have been a Tuesday night at Gamble Pavilion or the XL Center. Uh, he was he was that cool. Um, the other story I will tell you is that uh, there came a point where they begin to put the radio broadcasters next to the team bench, which was interesting for several dynamics, not the least of which is that the coach could use some salty language on the sidelines, as you know. But we never we never really had a problem with that. He would invariably, when a call went bad, and he didn't agree with it, he would invariably look for the first person he recognized to look for some affirmation that he was right and the officials was wrong. Well, he would lock eyes with me, and I would have to not, you know, I would never nod negatively, like, no, Jim, you're wrong. I knew better than that. I would always nod up and down. And one of my friends saw me do that once, and, and he, the next time he saw me, he said I looked like a bobblehead now. <laughs> the way my head was I got a lot bobbing up and down in agreement to coach. He's not a guy you want to disagree with much. No. I mean, we've had good sports disagreements and stuff. Um, you know, he's Boston. I'm New York. 
but no, he, he when he's in his element, you do not want to disagree with him. That's right. I even got the Jim Calhoun uh, bobblehead in my room. You do, and the Jason Tatum. That's good. Yeah, he's this big Celtics a fan prize. and, and uh, Red Sox fan. But this just shows that Red Sox and Yankee fans can get along just fine. And Jim Calhoun is is the best ever, the best program builder ever. And he just took that little small school um, to the national spotlight. Yeah, he did, uh, and many other coaches, including his good buddy Jim Beheim, have said. You know, uh, it's a coaching job that will never be uh, that will never be duplicated. A building job, so nowhere near the amount of all Americans either. He was really able to turn kids into diamonds. Uh, you saw them grow second year, third year, and then they just had so much confidence. I would agree. I well, would we agree. wanted to thank you so much, Joe, for spending time with us this morning. UConn's headed back to the Big East. You told the first several chapters of the story. We miss you on the call and. Uh, we can't wait to see what they do in the future. And we look forward to meeting you in person where next time we can put the headphones on and all be together in the studio. We'll go right downtown and, and uh, talk about some things happening in basketball in the future. Or maybe even baseball. I look forward to it. Or baseball. I would look forward to it. Michael and Joseph, it's been a lot of fun. Um, stay safe. And I look forward to doing Thank it Thank you again. so much for joining us on Sliders and Curveballs. And we wish you well, Joe. Stay safe. Yep, stay safe. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Bye-bye. Thanks.